Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Andrew Harrison. On today's show, life after Nadim Zahawi in a country where Rod Stewart is doing more for the NHS than the government is. The hostile environment towards immigrants is back again. And naughty, naughty, very naughty, Jeremy Hunt is promising a new 4E's approach to growth, enterprise, education, employment and everywhere, whatever that means. Has he overdone it on the E's and does he need to lie down? Before we start, we know you enjoy Oh God, What Now? So think how much more you'll enjoy it live on stage before your very eyes. We're on at the Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday the 15th of February at 7 o'clock with Ian Dunn, Ross Taylor, Aisha Hazarika and Alexandreo. It's our first show there in six months and it promises to be a cracking night. Tickets are on sale right now at leicestersquaretheatre.com and of course Patreon people get a discount. Check your Patreon page. Now let's meet today's panel. First up, it's the co-host of Origin Story and the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, out on the 13th of April. It's Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian Dunt. Hello, hello, hello. So, um, in uh, podcast favourites news, Andrew Bridgen <laughs> is threatening to see Matt Hancock for £100,000 because Hancock accused him of spreading, quotes, anti-Semitic, anti-vax conspiracy theories. And as we know from watching Arrested Development on telly, just threatening to sue is free, so that's okay. What, what would you reckon? It's not to... free. You still have to pay for them to send that letter. Well, all right, cheap. It's then. certainly considerably it's, cheaper than doing it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how would you reckon to Andrew Bridgen's chances of uh, getting a payday from Hancock? Not great. I mean, it would be amazing if you got to that stage and you would actually be in court seeing, you know, the actual judicial assessment of whether this was anti-Semitic or whether it's a conspiracy theory. Um, There'd be many, many defences open to Matthew Hancock, even in the British libel system, which is incredibly unfair and stacked against uh, the defendant. He'd be very likely to survive on them, whether it's honest opinion, whether it's in the public interest. I, I for one, would very much like to see all of these things tested in a court of law, very specifically on what Bridgen said, but I suspect that we'll never get them. I just looked at it and thought, you know that bit in Godzilla versus King Kong, and it's like, let them fight. (laughs) And play. Hancock is clearly Godzilla, right? Because at least you can feel some tiny scrap of human empathy for him. Is that, is that a reference to the fact that the conspiracy theory is sort of linked to the lizard people and therefore Hancock, <laughs> Hancock would be a lizard? He would, and he'd breathe radioactive fire. <laughs> also, returning to the podcast after securing her nomination as the prospective Labour Party candidate for Camberwell and Peckham, it's Miata Fambole. Hello, Miata, how are you? Hi, good, thank you. Glad to hear it. So you're going to be taking over uh, from Harriet Harman if you win. We're packing the show with the prospective Labour candidates here. We had Heidi Alexander on last week. What's it been like being in on the ground floor of the the party as it kind of rebuilt itself? 
Yeah, good. I mean, it's interesting. We had the uh, London Regional Conference um, this weekend. And I think the two words I'd use is hope and belief. Um, There's generally a sort of sense of energy, a sense of optimism, a sense that actually we can do this. Kind of married with, you know, no complacency. Uh, I think Labour's been scarred by too many instances where we thought uh, we could do it and then we didn't. There is a real kind of professionalism. Um, And I think for me, the thing I've liked seeing the most is some of the tensions and divisions. It feels like everyone's putting that to one side for now in order to get on with the job of trying to win the next election. What's the best reason to visit Camberwell and or Peckham? Oh, there are so many. So it's an amazing community. Uh, We've got uh, great restaurants. Um, You can get a sense of lots of different cultures that all come together beautifully. Great theatres. And we've just got really exciting things for young people to do. So for me, it's the heart of London. Um, It's a brilliant community and I would encourage everyone to come and visit. Our guest this week is the Senior Associate Editor of the New Statesman, Rachel Cunliffe. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Thank you for coming. Thank you for Thank making... you for having me. And in a real studio. In a real studio, yes, hand-built by humans. <laughs> so, I mean, the House of Lords, we hoped that they'd come to our rescue at various points during the Brexit years, but the Lords look, well, it looks like they could well strike down some of the uh, government's plans to silence pr- protests in the Public Order Bill. This bill is so contentious that even people in Hong Kong want Sir Oliver Ardman to amend it. Do you think there's much chance of that happening, of the watering down happening? I think it's actually more possible than interference from the Lords on other topics. You know, as you say, the Lords try not to get involved too much because when they do, we, we have lots of debate about should we have an elected House of Lords there in, in the first place. But this particular bill, I mean, what the government, this government that uh, cries out about what's going on with, with free speech being trampled at universities is now trying to pass legislation that would basically make it possible for the police to shut down any protest they like, uh, any protest they think might get disruptive, any person who they think might do something that might counter something disruptive in the future, even before they've actually done it. It is very draconian. It is handing politicians and police way more power to shut down peaceful protests than they've had before. And, and that's the kind of thing where you can see the Lords get getting exercised about it, particularly uh, because no one actually voted for any of this. Presumably the solution will be just to relocate all of your loud and violent disruptive protests into universities. Into and university think- campuses. And then the uh, the university freedom of speech czar would say no we have to let these disruptive protests go ahead because otherwise you know wokery and universities gone mad all of that lot so that is probably the solution yeah there you go solved it Rishi Sunak finally sat at Nadim Zahawi on Sunday morning, right in the middle of Michael Gove's interview with Koonsberg, which was a big surprise to Michael Gove. It was after an investigation by the Prime Minister's ethics advisor had found a serious breach of ministerial code over Zahawi's tax affairs. This comes at a time when Sunak's Justice Secretary Dominic Raab has at least 24 civil servants accusing him of bullying, and his Home Secretary has a huge hole in her department's finances. What are we to draw from the latest turn in the Tory scandal wheel? And has the party placed itself beyond punishment by basically assuming it's doomed anyway? Have they just given up? Ian, various Conservative outriders tried to brand Sunak's firing of Zahawi as brutal. He acted in a lightning-fast two weeks. Um, How does this fit into how to handle a scandal handbook? I mean, it's not great because, you know, you take the punishment for two weeks to your own brand. And then by the time you sort of get rid of him, it's sort of a bit too late. But actually, it is a kind of sort of centristy middle ground in resignations, right? So, like, you know, when you had Blair and Campbell would have probably gotten rid of someone after one week, maybe five days of this level. 
You look at Cameron, you look at Johnson, it would have taken much longer if it happened at all for their various reasons. Cameron just hated getting rid of people. And Johnson thought, if you get rid of someone, it suggests that there's a moral baseline to the behaviour that we might expect in government. And very soon they'll apply it to me. So there, there were various <laughs> reasons that they sort of stretched on both sides. Sunak, I think mostly through indecision, has gone for this kind of middle ground. It's not a great middle ground to be in. But you very much got the sense that when it came to that inquiry, by the end of it, he was just like, please, can you hurry the fuck up now? Because I do need to do this. It's quite a scrappy little report that that suggests that, and this is, you know, I have no evidence to base this on, but it suggests that there was quite a heavy hand from Downing Street of like, please do hurry up now. Sources, those wonderful sources, good. are now saying that uh, when he was at the Treasury, Sunak was made aware of an investigation into Zahawi's finances. Obviously, they tried to put this one to bed. What will it do to Rishi Sunak if this one keeps dragging on? And in fact, if it turns out that he was aware of this thing that he's finding so shocking and awful. With the sort of preamble that I'm almost always completely wrong about these things, I would not expect any of that to happen. You see sort of Zahawi's allies putting the case for him now, which was, you know, well, actually told Tom Scholar, the permanent secretary of the Treasury on this day, you know, it was told to the trust administration, all of that. You see on the other side, for instance, that Guardian report that was talking about sources informing Sunak in an informal way at a certain point. And you think all of this doesn't look like it has a lot of news legs on it. Generally speaking, by the time you get rid of someone, the story will, will die off. There will be murmurs and little bits of writing on page six, page seven, page ten. But I would suggest that even in a week, I think we would have forgotten about it. It would have done damage to Sunak, but the damage is now over. Well, you see, the thing is, one person who doesn't want us to forget about this and wants to keep the focus on this is a guy called Nadim Zahar. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to have his say, like a like a radio phone in. It's time to have mm. your. Is it is this a wise move for him to put his side of a story that everybody seems to have made their mind up on? I mean, you can see why he would think that way. I think no. I think he should just let it fly. But he is clearly going to keep on pressing it, and you can see certain figures in the press are putting his point of view across. I think it is a little bit odd that he doesn't have much of a role. You know, in the inquiry, if you look at the report, you know, that there isn't really an appraisal of the things he said. So, I mean, we get it to different extents. If you remember the, when it, what happened with Owen Patterson, which is obviously a slightly different process for a slightly different investigation, but you still have a very clear appraisal of what their argument was, of what they said to who, at which time. And we are lacking most of that, which again suggests that there was something of a rush. But he won't get anything too good out of pressing it. And I don't think Sunak will get anything too good out of it either. Rachel, Laurie Magnus says that unless Zahawi told cabinet officials about the investigation into his tax affairs, they couldn't have told Sunak before Magnus was appointed. Is this a story of Westminster bureaucracy helping to obscure the truth as much as it is about tax, do you think? I actually think that uh, the report from, from Laurie Magnus tried incredibly hard to exonerate Rishi Sunak from any kind of blame in all of this. It was absolutely damning of Zahawi and saying that he should have known as a minister what he should have disclosed when, uh, tracking some of his public statements that were clearly shown to be very, very misleading. Uh, and the argument being that everything that he has done uh, that require him to, to stand down as a minister and be sat, all of that happened kind of before the Rishi Sunak era. It happened when Boris Johnson was prime minister. You sort of have to ask, though, if Rishi Sunak didn't know about this, what is the point of ministerial vetting processes? What is the point of coming in and saying, uh, I'm going to restore integrity and professionalism to, to government if you then go, oh, well, they didn't tell me there were these ongoing scandals, which, by the way, had been reported in the press. So, you know, what, what, what was I meant to do? So it, it sort of does exonerate him, but in a way that also makes Rishi Sunak look very weak, I think. Yeah, I wish I could get 
vetted that way. If ever, you know, I knew from mortgage or something. Have you got a lot of money? Yes, I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> That's great. Fantastic. Here we go. So, so Harvey's farewell letter was packed with his uh, self-designated achievements in office. No contrition at all. Uh, and he t- talked about the concerning conduct of the fourth estate at a time when the Conservatives look yeah, basically need, need all the positive press they can get. Is it a good idea to be going after the press? I don't think he he cared about that. I think you read you read that uh, resignation letter, and it wasn't a resignation letter. It was a letter having been sacked. Mm. Um, no apology, as you say. No acknowledgement about what the issue even was. He didn't mention HMRC or any of that. Uh, he just sort of attacked the press uh, in the in the last paragraph, along with um, a headline that I think ran in the Independent uh, that referred to a, a noose. And I, I kind of do get that because I think. Where possible, we should avoid violent imagery towards MPs or, or politicians in, in general. Uh, but he completely neglected to mention the fact that when journalists tried to look into this, he yeah. sent them incredibly threatening legal letters, which meant that it took... I mean, the, the FT had a story, the Independent had a story, and they were really threatened with, with, with legal action if they published it. And it took one particularly brave reporter who who knows about libel laws and who knows about this, Dan Needle, I think his name is, to to get to the bottom of it. But to sort of have that, to have gone after journalists with those very aggressive tactics and then go, yeah, it was all the press's fault. Uh, I mean, the the, the arrogance of that man is really quite stunning. Well, in a sense, it is Dan Needle's fault for finding out about it. How dare he? Yeah. Um, Miata, Dan Needle did a huge amount of the hard work to uncover Zahawi's dodgy dealings. And he also faced down legal threats of that were just quite astonishing in their tone, effectively attempting to brand what has now emerged as the truth, as, as being libelous. Um, have we got an early contender for the hero of the year, do you think? I think so. I mean, I think it's impressive that he kept it. I think it's impressive that he wasn't you know, coerced into backing off, which was clearly, uh, the, you know, what uh, Zahari was trying to do. But it, for me, it's just a sad state of affairs that it takes the tenacity of a journalist to dig into things where, A, they shouldn't have happened in the first place, and B, we should have far greater transparency. Um, and, you know, and that the, the normal mechanisms for picking this up within the system just weren't working. Uh, it should have been picked up uh, by, uh, you know, internal standards it should have been picked up by uh, the process of vetting MPs and it wasn't and it took the journalists to kind of show yet another scandal I think it just leaves a really nasty taste in everyone's mouth. Miata what do you think these stories of Zahawi forgetting to pay a tax bill that amounted ultimately to five million pounds and in parallel Johnson kind of casually needing eight hundred thousand pounds for you know walking around money What does this mean for the old, you know, let's connect with the red wall and the concerns of the everyday person? Because these are phenomenal amounts of money, amounts of money that most people will not see in their lifetime being treated in, in a casual manner. Yeah, look, it is awful for the brand. Um, I mean, it would be awful at any time, but when you've got a cost of living crisis, when there are so many people and now, you know, it's touching everyone that are generally struggling, the idea that you could be sort of playing with these sums of money just feels like they are in another world. They feel like they are completely detached from people's everyday reality. That makes it very hard for them to seem like empathetic MPs, empathetic party. But for me, you know, I don't think it's just about the red wall i think there was a, a genuine question about integrity um we've had such a decay of the standards in public life uh and i think when you have these sorts of scandals because that's what people see it as 
it's hugely damaging to the Conservative Party. But my worry is actually it's damaging to politics in the round because people just assume that everyone's at it. Uh, they assume that everyone does dodgy deals that no one's placed by the rule. And I think in a world where there is so much distrust of our political space and realm, that's damaging for everyone. You know, it's particularly damaging for the Conservatives, but I think actually it tarnishes everyone. And that, for me, is a real tragedy of all of this. I mean, what, what are the asset tests of this is going to be how long he stays sacked or stays resigned because the, the period of detoxification seems to have gone down from like a Mandelson, which is what, three years to what was it for Braverman? Six days? You, how, how long before he'll be back, do you think? Do you know what? I think it's a pretty bad look in the run into an election if they bring him back. Um, and, you know, it's particularly difficult because Rishi Sunak was supposed to be the sort of straight up clean guy. He was trying to build his band around professionalism and integrity. And the idea that someone that, you know, didn't resign, which would have been the right thing to have done, was like sacked and, you know, only conceded to this kind of kicking and screaming. The idea that you'd bring them back, I think, is massively damaging so perhaps on the other side of an election but i would hope uh not this side of an election but you know who knows we're in a completely different world where our standards are much lower than i'm, I'm used to or that i want or expect ian with this focus on or, you know in some respects uh, enforced focus on internal affairs in the conservative party and the kind of you know brass neck refusal to take action until you're forced to do it <laughs> Do you, do you get the sense that the Tories really have given up? That you know, like a, a serious prime minister would have canned Zahawi in in a genuinely brutal fashion, and would probably have kind of sidelined Boris Johnson by now somehow already. And yet Sunak is just being carried along by the winds of events. I don't think he's given up. The problem that he has is that he does put aside any of the morality or the reality. Just think about his own personal incentives. He put it front and centre, the standards that you would expect in government when he came in, that he would be respectable, that he would clean everything up. So therefore, there's a very strong incentive on him to just deal with this stuff very, very swiftly and early on. He has failed to do that. He's failing to do it right now over Dominic Raab. That, I mean, the Raab story will go on and on for weeks now and then will then be shadowed by the investigation into Boris Johnson, which would be a much bigger story, which will be sort of, I expect, live on television as it happens day after day after day. So on that basis, it's going to be quite difficult. He should be dealing with those faster if he has an instinct for his own self-preservation. The thing that's different in the list you just gave, I think, is Boris Johnson. And I think even a very experienced PM in Sunak's position would really struggle to put the box on what Boris Johnson is doing because he is going to amass any kind of instinctive, emotional or intellectual opposition to the prime minister for his own benefit. And the obvious place for that is Brexit, which is an area that exists far outside of the realms of sort of intellect and logical thought. And I think will probably focus on the Northern Ireland protocol. And that is, is a really, really difficult political problem to solve. And of all Sunak's many failings, failings having solved that one isn't a very large one. Do you think there is any clear route out for him then for Sunak? Because as you say, the wind is blowing the boat towards Brexit, even though nobody wants to think about this at, at all. I mean, Camilla Tomney in today's Telegraph thinks Sunak can win out by persuading regretters that Brexit was a good idea, <laughs> which, I, I, which would be a trick. I mean, 
in the unlikely event that you were kind of teleported into number 10 as his new advisor, what would you be telling him to push? OK, so the bad side is that all of the things you need to fix the situation that we're in would take much longer than he's got before you go to an election. Like how long does it take to fix the NHS? You know, what's the kind of project you would have? That is a three to four year project at minimum before you start seeing really concrete results. As you can see, by virtue of the fact he's making promises of like, just wait until, you know, next year and I can get us down to just 75 percent of people waiting over four hours in A&E, which within our memory was 98 percent. That was the fucking test. OK, so on that basis, it takes too long. He's a bit screwed there. He has to rely on general improvements in inflation, in wages, uh, in order to make the case for him. The bits that he can control is where he should be putting the work. And that would start with strikes. And it's in his interest that at the very least, the strike story just goes away. And that would take pain now because it's essentially a concession of, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you make these concessions earlier and prevent us the, the days of pain that we've had? But at the very least, you have some control over that area. So that would be the key thing that I would look at if I was in his shoes, which thank fuck almighty I'm not. Miata, I wanted to ask you if you think the Conservatives look like a party that's given up, but you're going to be standing against one pretty soon, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> do you know who you're up? Do you know who you're up against yet? No, I don't imagine they'll select for uh, Campbell and Packham until very late uh, uh, down the line. Um, I think they are. I think they are tired. Um, they have been in power for a really long time. Um, it feels like they're out of energy. It feels like they're out of ideas. Um, and I think part of what we're seeing is that there was a huge call of talent. Uh, you know, Boris Johnson got rid of a lot of people that, you know, many would have, you know, associated with being the kind of rising stars or the kind of the core plank of the Tory party and they were kicked out of the party. So I think they have a talent pool problem um, and I think they've got an exhaustion problem and I think they are facing a set of challenges that they are just not able to stand up to um, and that is really problematic for the country because we need the best possible government we can have in order to weather the storm, and they are just not fighting fit. Paul Goodman at Conservative Home thinks Eurosceptics are a much bigger threat to Sunak than scandal, even though the government seems to be in decline. There are still some huge legislative decisions coming up this year that the Eurosceptics will want to stick their oar in on. Do you think his inability to keep discipline in the party is going to have long-term effects for the country? I think so. Look, I think the biggest risk for him was always, can he tame the party? Um, it had become so fractured um, and so angry and there was so much acrimony between the different sides. Could he pull them and bring them all together? Um, and unfortunately, I, I suspect the Northern Ireland protocol will be the thing. I think there are probably a set of people that want to create problems for him anyway. Um, and this creates a catalyst for him to do that. And I think the test will be, is he a savvy and experienced enough politician to be able to navigate through that and build the coalition to hold the party together? And only time will tell, but everything we're seeing so far suggests that that might not be the case. Rachel, the kind of cliche is to say that this is like, uh, this is 1992 for the Conservatives all over again, which I can actually remember because I'm a million years old. And it was a horrible, you know, sort of thing. Um, you know, that, that it's you know possible that Sunak's going to pull it out the bag. Do you think it's 1992 or is it 1997, the much happier story? I think I think that is, well, it depends on whose side you're on, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, I think that is the debate that is going on right now in Conservative circles. Is it 1992 where we can just pull a, a, a win out the bag and limp on for five more years? or is it a landslide of 1997? Now, if you looked at the polls during the brief Liz Truss era, it looked more of a landslide than 1997. And those numbers haven't really recovered. We act like they've recovered because I think Sunak has a 10-point bounce, give or take, but he's still trending at 20 points below Labour, which is just 
I say unprecedented. It's not if you go back to 1997. Unprecedented sort of in the last decade. Um, And fundamentally, the Conservatives don't have a positive vision for the next election. They don't have anything constructive to sort of base it around. If you think about uh, the last election being the draw of Boris Johnson, yay, let's get Brexit done, and also we don't like Jeremy Corbyn, none of those factors are really in play. And in fact, the the Brexit one, as much as there is a very Eurosceptic wing in the Conservative Party that are going to be on Sunak's back if he starts making any concessions at all, in terms of the wider public, the country, businesses, everyone can see that this version of Brexit is a disaster uh, and that all of the pragmatic solutions involve closer ties with the EU, just being a bit nicer to the EU, uh, not saying that Emmanuel Macron is possibly a foe rather than a friend, which is what Liz Trust did doing the the leadership contest, there isn't anything positive that you can really spin out of Brexit at the moment. So you've got none of those three factors at play. You've also uh, got the the age factor, which I think is is a really key one in 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 this election. The one the one that's coming. I mean, the the age at which people vote Conservative, start voting Conservative, has, has been rising. And if you're t- t- if you're looking at polls and looking at the fact that everyone under fifty. 45 is looking at house prices and the economy and high taxes and low growth and inflation and the cost of living crisis and going yeah I'm going to I'm going to chance it with 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 with, with someone else that is a, a real challenge for them I spent today writing about Rod Stewart uh, and about the fact that <laughs> just even in general he, just in general <laughs> Maggie May Atlanta Crossing great album <laughs> No. Well, exactly. If you were if you were eighteen when when Maggie May came out, you were a child of the Thatcher Revolution. You got all of the benefits that that bestowed upon people who were in the right place at the right time during that period. You've probably been voting Conservative for the last couple of decades. Now you're seventy. The NHS is falling apart, and even Rod Stewart is telling you, "Give the other lot a go." <laughs> that that means something. When you've lost Rod the Mod, you've lost the country. <laughs> Now, like a clapped-out band that has to keep touring in order to make up the alimony cash, the government is falling back on the old hits, specifically the hostile environment towards migrants. Rishi Sunak's promise to turn back small boats in the Channel is one of his core pledges, but the subject continues to get nastier and crueler. The Observer found that dozens of asylum-seeking children had been kidnapped by gangs from a Brighton hotel, which the Home Office was running... And when MP Tulip Sadiq raised the issue of Prime Minister's questions, the Simeon Tory MP Jonathan Gullis heckled her with the words, well, they shouldn't have come here illegally. Gullis is a former teacher. Now it's emerged that over 140,000 EU citizens in the UK may have received benefits they were not entitled to due to a processing mix-up during the transition out of the EU. Now, Rachel, this is a a massive grab bag of immigration-related awfulness. On the on the least painful lot, that that benefits thing. Can the UK compel the, uh, those people to pay back the money? I mean, they can hardly ask foreign governments to extradite thousands of people over a bit of housing benefits. Uh, I think if the people are gone, you know, that's it. Uh, mm. And and maybe if the government wants to spend lots of time chasing down money that it thinks people living in different countries owe the UK government, it it could start with offshore tax havens. There's probably a bit more to get there than Steady. to try to claw back claw back the uh, the benefits paid to, to EU citizens. Uh, 
But there's a much wider problem here, which is that the way in which EU settled status was organised or or not organised has all of the hallmarks of the Windrush scandal. You have people who have been living here for decades being told they don't have the right paperwork or HMRC lost their files, which seems to happen an awful lot. There were a lot of fires and floods. Uh, Sorry, not HMRC, the Home Office, although probably HMRC as well, given that part of what they needed to send was was tax records. Um, But it is a a massive scandal in how hard it has been for people who have been living and working here perfectly legally, who do have the right to get settled status and to stay, to to actually achieve that. And it is part of the way in which our Home Office and our immigration policy basically treats anyone coming here to, to live or work as a criminal or as a prospective criminal, whether they've actually done anything or not, and you see that in how hard the application process is, uh, even for people uh, of uh, EU citizens who obviously have that right. Uh, and you also see it in the, the rhetoric about people who come here illegally, but who may be coming here to claim asylum and to have their asylum claims upheld. And a lot is made by Conservative MPs about how well they shouldn't have come here illegally. If you come here illegally, you're automatically a criminal. What they don't mention, unless you're stupid enough to actually mention it. In a select committee hearing, which Suella Braverman did, is that there are no legal routes to claiming asylum here unless you are from a very specific list of countries. So if you're fleeing a war zone, you want to come join family in the UK, the UK government has made the system such that the only way you can do that is to make a very dangerous, illegal crossing to then make your legal asylum claim, at which point Tory MPs will say, well, you came here illegally, so we're going to kick you out anyway, is... We probably overuse the word Kafkaesque, but in this particular uh, scenario, that that is kind of the only word for it, isn't it? It is. But that said, if you're Suella Braverman, benefits and migrants in the same story is kind of two squares on your bingo card, isn't it? It's what you want to. It's what you want to be talking about. Do you think this is making the same running with potential Conservative voters that say, you know, illegal immigration did during the referendum? Is is it making an impression? It's a very dangerous game for a Home Secretary to be playing because, yes, you get your base fired up and, yes, you get lots of angry Daily Express headlines about EU scroungers costing the UK taxpayer X amount and that kind of makes you look good and you get to make tough statements uh, on the broadcast round. However, if you then don't fix it and the Home Office, among many other things that it is, is quite incompetent and a lot of these problems are quite large challenges as you say clawing back that money from from uh, foreign governments is not going to be easy you then look incompetent and you have that very same base that you fired up then going well hang on that lady said she was going to fix it and she hasn't fixed it has she which is what started to happen with Preeti Patel which is why we had to replace Preeti Patel with an even more extreme draconian home secretary who promised to be even crueler uh, and who is in fact proving just as incompetent sorry is this too biased for you <laughs> there's really no limit on bias I don't not, think on this, on this not, not when it comes to the home secretary come out as offcom Ian um, the home office seems to be more concerned with um, raiding homes over illegal Premier League streams than tracing the 200 Albanian children who've gone missing in the last few months we've kind of Sometimes I feel like we've exhausted our reserves of disgust, but this is a special level, isn't it? Like kids disappearing, and it appears that nobody cares. Yeah, that's exactly right. Nobody gives a fuck. 
You can and you can see and you can you can see it in the Home Office. I think you could also see it across most of the media. Like if it gets any slot at all, it's usually like the fourth, the fifth item, and someone's just like, "Oh, by the way, they're fucking, they're stealing kids. They're just stealing kids out of these centres. We don't know what the fuck." But is the going idea on. that Gullis could actually just claim i know this part of the, the part of the trope is oh they're not really kids you know check their teeth they're all 40 and this right, bullshit right. but the idea that he could have the the effrontery to say in the comments well it's their fault for being here yeah but let's put him as i mean you know he has revealed the depravity of his moral composition okay so i think we could put him to one side and people that are of that sort of motivation and that instinct just being themselves is the worst punishment that they can anyway face. And that's not part of the policy. The part of the policy that's really troubling is when the Home Office started setting up what's basically an institution. I mean, it's managing the hotels. The security is outsourced, but they are managing the hotels. Two years ago, they were told that this was going to happen. They were, going to, they were told that they were breaking the longstanding norm that a local council is in charge of child welfare. Now we get here, the exact thing that was warned about is now taking place. We don't know who the fuck has legal responsibility over it. It's completely unclear from anything that the Home Office says, from anything that local council says. The best we've got is from someone on the, I beg your pardon, from the chair of the Home Affairs Committee who said during the debate, well, when we asked the permanent secretary, they indicated that it's probably them, you know, in, in the Home Office. But that's as much as we've got. There's no clear line of responsibility. And then the Home Office comes out and goes, you can't use the word abducted because we don't know that yet. So of course we don't know. We don't know what has happened to these kids because by the moment that they disappear, we do not know where they are. Now, it is absolutely surely true that some will have absconded to go reunite with friends and family. That must be true. Mm. But what we have are the Guardian sources, very, very well researched story by very, very well respected journalists, um, predominantly the Observer. They said, we have reports over and over and sightings of cars pulling up outside the hotels and bundling the kids in. And that's what we do know. So for the, for the Home Office to suddenly clamp down as it is on people using the word abducted, you're like, well, you have failed to look into it. You failed to provide the answers. The journalists that have done the work to find out what's going on are coming up with these reports. So for you to spend your time on the PR exercise rather than finding out that what it is that is going on in institutions which you yourselves are managing and were warned about is a rather catastrophic state of affairs. Miata. Without wanting to harp on about uh, Jonathan Gullis, it, what he said was widely thought of as a, as a new low in what we've heard around this debate. But you also get the impression that like the cruelty is now ingrained into that wing of the Tory party. The fact that it is cruel and neglectful is almost seen as, as, as a benefit. I mean, am, am I just projecting here? I don't know. I don't know. I still like to believe that, you know, there are good people uh, in politics. I, I think there is a level of humanity that's been lost in all of this. Um, I think immigration has become such a political football that people suspend the fact that there are kids and vulnerable people and people feel, fleeing conflict and war at the heart of it. And I think we need to try and bring back some of that humanity. You know, for me, the entire debate around immigration. I think everything the government's doing is just noise to ostracate. You know, in the end, they are presiding over a system that is broken down to their fault. There are things that they can do, starting with safe and legal routes, uh, starting with bolstering uh, the border force uh, and the home office operation, and starting with injecting some proper humanity into the process that would take us a long way from where we are. They seem completely incapable of doing those things. So they create noise, Rwanda policy, this, that, and it is all 
to try and breed hate, to try and other people. It's quite hard uh, not to feel quite angry, um, not to feel quite sick by it all. Um, but I think it's really important to try and hold reasonable, rational debate, um, because I think most of the public actually are quite empathetic. And the arguments can be made and the case can be made for us to get to a far better immigration system than the one that we have. Finally, Liz Truss managed to pack seven years of memes into seven weeks when she was Prime Minister. She survived long enough to do a conference speech in which she railed against the anti-growth coalition, spawning countless T-shirts and mugs which you may be able to find at podmarket.co.uk. You've got a backlog that you need to get rid of because you're expecting her to last long. That's how we're going to boost growth in the country. Um, Jeremy Hunt seems to be playing some of the same notes but just in a different order. He says the best tax cut is a fall in inflation and that the declinist narrative in Britain is part of a Labour plot to talk the country down. Having decided that the E's are good, enterprise, employment, education and everywhere, this is the new spin on levelling up. Miata, Hunt's speech on the economy at the Bloomberg HQ was very lacking in detail. What did you take from it? I mean, three things. I think the first thing is, you know, all boosterism is all well and good. But when it is completely divorced from the experience of people in the country, um, it feels detached from reality. Um, so the kind of talking up and the optimism is fine. Uh, but, but that's not what the core stats tell us. That's not what people's lives and experiences tell us. And the second thing that I was sort of quite taken aback is that in everything he said, he didn't talk about, if, if you like, the biggest challenge the government faces, which is they have presided over the most catastrophic failure to improve living standards that we've seen uh, in modern times. Um, and it's not just the cost of living crisis that's taking everyone back. It's the fact that, you know, we've had near on 13 years in which living standards haven't budged. You know, that is their record. That is their failure. And I found it quite interesting that at nowhere in that speech, they took that head on. And I think the third thing is just the lack of ideas. You know, the, the, the four or whatever ease is all well and good, but there was no substance behind it. And there is something terrifying as an economist when you look at the scale of what the government is faced with and you look at what they need to do in the country and you realise there's nothing in the tank. There is literally nothing there. They have no answers to the problems that we face. And that is really scary for the country. How do you achieve growth without going for a quasi-quartzing, tax-cutting spasm? Because the Conservatives have engra- seem to have ingrained it over the years that this is the only way, this is the only way to achieve growth. With a bit of luck, you'll be part of the Parliamentary Labour Party when Labour is the government next time around. How do we get growth in an era where cheap money has gone without simply shoveling it towards very rich people? Yeah, well, that's a million dollar question. So for me, there's sort of three things that I think we need to prioritise. I think the first is investment. Um, and what I'd say is the era of cheap money is gone. Uh, but actually, it, the cost of, the cost of capital, the cost of borrowing is still lower than it's been historically. And one of the biggest problems we face in this country relative to our European counterparts is that we just haven't invested in stuff. There's a reason why everything feels like it's creaking and breaking, that our transport system doesn't work, our energy system doesn't work. We have underinvested. We're underinvested in the things that we need to in research and development and critically in people. So you have to start there. I think for me, the second is, you know, we talk about this productivity puzzle and there are two parts of it. There's your frontier, you know, your high value added, your high tech, your, you know, the, the, the companies that are the companies of the future that everyone likes to bang on about. And actually they're doing broadly all right. Where we've always struggled is the kind of everyday economy, uh, things like hospitality, retail, uh, things like social care 
care. You know, everyday jobs, by the way, employ huge swathes of the country and we have not been able to improve productivity in those sectors. And that requires a very different strategy that is place-based. So we focus on the areas and the sectors that exist and we think about ways in which we support those businesses and those organisations to grow, to improve, uh, to innovate. And then the third is people. Um, you know, in the end, our economy is made up of people and we have not invested enough in people's capacity, their skills, their talents. Um, and unless you do that really well, you will struggle. So it's kind of bread and butter things. But the, the final thing I'd say is growth is only part of the equation. So at the moment, all of our narrative is growth, growth, growth. And, you know, to be fair, we have had periods of growth over the course of the last 12 years. It hasn't translated into living standards. And so for me, yes, you've got to drive prosperity, but you've also got to do a set of things to make sure that everyone benefits. And what we've seen, sadly, I think for people is that the pie has grown, but actually people haven't benefited. And for me, that is about deliberate policy that tries to skew the way the economy works so that it generally benefits people and the majority of people and not just a minority of people. Ian, Hunt said that his plan is necessitated, energised and made possible by the freedoms uh, of being in a post-Brexit world, which seems kind of like pretty much 180 degrees the opposite of what's actually going on with Brexit. Uh, how convincing was this uh, this talk of the wonders of Brexit? No, 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 no. Not very convincing at all. You may be surprised to hear me say that, but it remains the case. Uh, it, it's not convincing on the objective fact. It's also not convincing on the delivery because he just looks... It's just like, oh, mate, you're not fooling anyone. Like, we know you're not an idiot. We know that you don't believe any of this stuff. If, if there's one man in politics that you want to say blink twice if you're being held against your will, and he just cannot blink. He never does. He never does. He's just like <laughs> gazing at you. I know. So I felt a bit bad because it, so it was so obvious what was going on. And he, he even was reduced at one point to saying, I think almost exactly we're going to make a success of it. So almost exactly, you're just like, oh, fuck, nothing's changed. Mm. It's just like, literally, you could take, it's like the same line that Theresa May was saying in 2016 is exactly where we are now. It's just like, oh, just, just a little bit further, just over that hill over there. We'll then find the way in which this will help us. The sunlit uplands. The sun, the yeah. great sunlit uplands, yeah. And, and it's sort of, it's, it's, it's a bit depressing because I don't really have any strong feelings on Hunt at all. Like, I, there are things to, to notice that are good about him. And the first one is that there is some functioning cognitive capacity. And he's also quite gentle, I think, in his manner. And, and that's quite an important thing, actually. Like, after years of having these kind of belligerent thugs just come over and be as insulting as possible, oh. it's quite nice that he comes across and he seems like he's probably quite a nice guy. It's all fine. But ultimately... His argument is all about, well, look, we've got to be optimistic, right? We can't have this declinism and Brexit's going to be part of what solves it. And you just think the declinism isn't arbitrary. It's not like just it just happens to like there's a dark cloud over us right now. It's based on objective facts about what is happening to our country. And if you are just going to play the game of like, well, let's just be optimistic, but refuse to talk about anything that might be politically unhelpful or refuse to talk in objective terms about how we're going to fix it, you are ultimately just doing the same shit as Boris Johnson, just, you know, in a less pernicious way. But the overall game plan seems to me to be ultimately quite, quite similar. I mean, the thing is, it's like he wasn't even an original Brexiter. He doesn't. No, really no, he's a room. He's a roommate. Any of this shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not even. He's not even really trying very hard to convince anyone. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, it's just. Surely, there's no one on earth that knows of his opinions that just thinks that he's suddenly changed them now. No, of course. Do you think there was anything? Was there anything in that speech that made you 
think any thoughts of any kind or did you just, <laughs> it's just some noise coming at me no i mean what well, in terms of policy it's it's you know just a repeat of all the stuff that had been there before you know he's a, he's sort of right on stuff like productivity but what the fuck does that matter like anyone that has read the first page of any report on what is going on in the british economy is going to start talking about productivity so like any of the proposals that he has are significant enough to change that i mean ultimately it was an a, like Sunak's New Year speech, it's an attempt to challenge mood without changing the underlying conditions that gave rise to that mood in the first place. And until we get a speech that is about underlying conditions, there's no reason for our mood to change. Rachel, we keep hearing these rumbles about a trust legacy as if as if like, <laughs> A, the trust era was a big long thing and B, it happened like 300 years ago yeah. and we should be looking at it with reverence, <laughs> like it's just raising the Mary Rose or something like that. Um and also, you keep hearing these tales about how she's the only person in Parliament with a smile on her face. This could be because she's crackers, <laughs> known to be bonkers. Um, but is there any realistic prospect of a comeback for this this mad creed? So, so first, I don't think she is the only person with a smile on her face. I think Theresa May is looking pretty cheerful as well. Mm-hmm. I think there is something that happens when you are... Uh, handed an absolute mess in in politics, perhaps particularly if you are a woman who is handed that mess, uh, and then a whole load of men try and snatch it from you, uh, and then go and fuck it up, uh, which I can say on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I can't can't say that on the podcast that I'm normally at. Um, (laughs) And then you get to watch them fuck it up, and it's like, yeah. Are you going to say fuck every (laughs) sentence now? It's just out of control. Uh, The Roger Melly of politics here. (laughs) But there's a there's a sense of liberation that comes from that. And I, I wonder if it's partly that. Also, I mean, I've met Liz Trust and she does her sort of default expression is this kind of mad smile. So that's just <laughs> that could just be her. Yeah. Some people have resting bitch face and she has that. Um <laughs> but I think there is a genuine faction in the Conservative Party who have convinced themselves that the way they went about it was obviously wrong, but that the core message was right uh, and and that uh, if we could just do it in, magically in the right way, mm. we could get this this level of growth. I mean, they're not wrong that British growth is really sluggish. We're behind uh, the second, second lowest in the G7 and I think lowest in the EU. We're not in the EU, lowest in Europe. We are really lagging behind. I mean, all countries were hit by COVID and, and inflation and the war in Ukraine, but we are faring particularly badly. I think you know, Miata's point about investment is a really good one. There were actually two areas where Liz Truss, I think, had good ideas, which I don't think she would ever have been able to get through had she lasted more than six weeks, um, but have disappeared. One of them was you know, planning reforms, actually building some houses. A great way of in- increasing productivity is if you enable people to live near where the jobs are and then they can go and do those more productive jobs and they're not spending half their income on rent or or half their time travelling and commuting because they can't afford to live there. Really important that we build some houses, uh, something that there's huge resistance to in the southern Tory seats. So if you had a Conservative Prime Minister, maybe Rishi Sunak now, who doesn't mind being unpopular, who went, I don't care what you think, we're going to build those houses and that's going to be my legacy. I don't care if you know it's an election loser, we're going to lose the election anyway. Let's do it. That would be great. And then the other one is is childcare. There is a huge amount of uh, distress in government. There are 9 million people out of work. What can we do? Well, maybe we can give the over 50s tax cuts to come back to work. <laughs> yeah, if there's any demographic in society right now that really needs the tax cuts, it's the people over 50 who aren't working because they can afford to not work. <laughs> um, or you could actually invest in 
childcare, which means that uh, you could get a whole load of, of working parents back to, or would, would love to be working parents back to work, particularly women who simply can't afford to go back to their jobs because childcare is more than a mortgage at the moment, which is something that no, no, no politician really seems to get, especially not in cabinet, mainly because they're all men and they've clearly never had to give up a job because they had to do the school run. Yeah, well, you know, maybe if these parents gave up Netflix and avocado on toast and think, and lattes, maybe they'd be able to afford childcare and, and they could get a job. Or if maybe ever thought about it that way? Or maybe if they thought about it and not had children in the first place, they wouldn't be in that situation. Then they could afford childcare. <laughs> <laughs> and that is why the birth rate in this country is plummeting. There you go. We've got all the solutions. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for Escape Routes. What movies, TV shows or 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzles are our panel using to save themselves from a politically-based doom spiral? Miata. Tragically, not very much, because at the moment all I'm doing is work or politics. Uh, but I think uh, I have taken, it's the start of the year, it's January, I'm back at the gym. Uh, so I'm trying to go three times a week. That's my time when I don't think about anything political, because uh, I'm too busy uh, sweating and unable to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's my thing for now. <laughs> Ian Dunn, what's your escape route? All right. Traitors. As I, I, I'm very well, late. In general, this. in Sorry. life, yes, yes. <laughs> or on general, just yeah. l- looking suspiciously in my own family. Um, th- this TV show is a reality TV show. Uh, I'm not allowed to watch it with anyone else in my household because they think it's sort of vacuous, corrosive. Can I just tosh. check? Are you talking about the UK version or the US? UK, version? UK. Okay, uh, I've, that's I've an seen, important distinction. I've seen mixed reviews on the US one. It's and not as good. Depending on how I feel when I finish the British one, I might have to go do it. Sort of in the way that you might take morphine after coming off heroin. <laughs> We'll have to wait and see. Um, I am absolutely fucking obsessed by it. Like, I just can't. And, and it is provoking reactions in me. So, like, the dog spends most of the time yapping because I've jumped up on the sofa shouting, oh, my fucking God, what have you just done? It is, like, genuinely gripping stuff. And I think, like everyone, I think that what probably happens is people sit there and just come to their own conclusions about that their preconceived ideas about humanity by watching it. And mine are that it is the greatest encapsulation of groupthink and the targeting of eccentricity and people who don't look quite authentic because maybe they're like a bit shy or, or sort of question themselves in like a like you should put it next to the fucking like you know the witch hunts or McCarthy or the Dreyfus affair as just these examples of like you want to know how humans behave in this kind of weird paranoid uh, moment fucking go watch the traitors because it is like page one par one a fantastic explanation of how that works so basically you're watching the Stanford prison experiment and enjoying it a bit yeah but hosted by Claudia Winkleman yeah, which, which I think is the only misstep. <laughs> See if Alan, if Alan Cumming, who is the the presenter of the US one, uh-huh. could have done the UK one, it would have been the best TV show ever made. I, I'm not going to spoil any of it for you. I'll just say that the US one is a very different game. It's more like American Big Brother, but. Alan Cumming is there in the Scottish Castle, in his tartan, quoting Shakespeare, misquoting Shakespeare, <laughs> having the time of fucking life. <laughs> and it's just so much more into it. I mean, I liked Claudia Winkleman with her sort of fingerless gloves, but he is he is so much more into it than she was. So that's what I want. I want the British season, but hosted by him. Oh, interesting. The I... other thing I think they should do is I think they should make season two of The Traitors with exactly the same cast, but different people as traitors. 
That's actually a very good idea. Psychological warfare of that would be absolute carnage. I also just want to put this on record somewhere that Amanda is, I think, one of the greatest TV creations of the last decade. And I love her unreservedly. And my heart was broken when she left. Now, that's all said. Andrew looks like he wants to climb under the table. And I will shut the fuck up. I can hear the format of the podcast changing with my very ears. (laughs) I'm going to have to move it from politics into recaps for your favorite reality shows. Rachel Cunliffe, what is your escape route for the moment? And if you say the traitors, there'll be trouble. Oh, it's not the traitors because I'm a terrible millennial in that if I'm trying to watch something, I will double screen. I'll be on my phone at the same time. And then I'll be on Twitter. And then I'll be depressed about Twitter. And then whatever escapism thing I'm trying to watch watch won't work and I also can't read anything heavy at the moment because it's all too depressing so I am retreating into detective fiction into the complete works of Chris Brookmeyer oh, uh, right. and I am I've only just discovered him and it's amazing the the protagonist is this journalist who wants to take down political institutions by sort of breaking into places where he shouldn't and exposing all kinds of serious wrongdoing uh, while with, with sort of semi, semi-legal means. And there's always a twist and I never guess what it is. And crucially, it's turning pages only, which means I can take it and read it in the bath and I won't look at my phone. That, that sounds full spectrum um, <laughs> delivery of escapism. Yeah. Well, mine is I'm continuing to hammer away at um, friend of the podcast, Adrian Tchaikovsky, the science fiction author. Uh, new one, Children of Memory is out, uh, I think, last week, two weeks ago. It's the third in, in, a, in a series of uh, fantastic stories set in the distant future, which explore the nature of um, humanity and the nature of mind and the nature of consciousness and are still incredibly pacey. But the one I wanted to recommend is one called Bearhead, which is set on Mars. And here's the situation, right? You're just a normal guy working on Mars, out in having had your body modified so that you can exist in an atmosphere with like very little oxygen in it. And then suddenly you have the consciousness of an intelligent bear downloaded into the space in your head and it's arguing with you in your head. There's your story. And you will find that the disembodied consciousness of an intelligent bear is one of the most likable characters you'll run into. And you will also find that this becomes a lengthy and very persuasive uh, argument about what, uh, which consciousnesses do we give rights to? Which consciousnesses do we consider to be intelligent? And also, what are we going to do with this planet after we've ruined it? Where, where else can we go and live? It's called Bearhead. It's a sequel to one called Dogs of War, which is equally fantastic. And I just feel like Adrian Tchaikovsky should be paying us a stipend because all I do is just <laughs> recommend his books. Yeah. But then on the other hand, he is like one of the great philosophers of our time. Un- unfairly not given the respect he deserves because all of his philosophy takes place in books on spaceships. Yes. But it's still just fucking amazing. Yeah, it all, it, the philosophy all comes out the mouth of an intelligent spider or a bear or a multi-level AI that's composed of ants. <laughs> you know, all voices you can trust. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Uh, before we go, we have a message from listener David Rochester. Please can I ask for a special shout out on the next episode for whoever writes your episode titles. They are so funny and clever. Recent favourites have included I Fought EU Law, Weapons of Maths Distraction and Operation Rolling Blunder. However, I was forced to email in by the latest, which tops the lot and made me laugh out loud in a public place, Rage Against the Nadim. Thank you for doing it. <laughs> Keep going at what you're doing. You're what keeps, keeps us all going. Now, Rage Against the Nadim was the work of uh, our lead producer, Jacob Jarvis, so the credit must go there. Um, listen, what they don't know is that actually talking to you people as humans in real time mostly involves you just saying shit like that. It's such no fun. matter what, it's just basically like a pun creation machine in fleshy form. It's a form of and Tourette's. It, yeah, after a while, it becomes quite oppressive. I just want to get that out there. Okay, well, you know, the listeners don't need to know that. <laughs> 
listeners, <laughs> if you do want us to keep going and pulling away, then why not be like David Rochester and back us on Patreon? For as little as £3 a month, you'll get episodes early, you'll get bonus content like our Thursday Extra Bit and our Monday Minicast, Oh God, What Else?, as well as exclusive bonuses like merchandise and early access and discounts on the live show tickets, like the one on Wednesday the 15th of February, our very own post-Valentine's Night Massacre. (laughs) So here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and some shouts and thank yous to some of those lovely backers. Hello, and massive thanks for your support to David Manley, Judith Lohman, Andrew, Claire McDermott, Thomas Watt, Megan Van Ruin, James Barkley, and Mark Aylward. A big hello from me to Amanda Wallace, Sarah Reed, Alison Wallace, Anna Silverlin Lamvik, Anne Bateman, Richard Delavan, Michael Cole, and Rachel Prest. And finally, big shout out from me and enormous thanks to Jonathan Scott, Estra Falario DC. Jake Hall, Richard Beach, Michael Joseph McLaughlin, Stephen KT, Eden Corey, and a special shout to Bella Reichardt and Edward. Thank you for listening. We'll see you at the end of the week for another edition. Oh, God, what now? Was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, with Ian Dunt, and Miata Fanbola. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich, Jack Gerbertson, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor, James Parrott. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. <laughs>